please let yourself come back in and find a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease. Again, let yourself sit and rest at ease as you listen. In many ways, what the words are from the Buddhist teachings, or at least the version that you hear, are much more uh, a reminder of something that you already know than something that you have to take notes on and bring back home and try to collect in some way. Over the past weeks of teachings, um, been able to work with and reflect on some of the fundamental ways of practice that talks on awakening the one who knows our inner wisdom, taking the one seat in the world, planting the seeds of understanding. And starting this week, I'd like to return to a series of teachings that are one of my favorite um, in the Buddhist uh, compendium that speak about our true nature or our Buddha nature and to reflect on them over the course of the next weeks as a reminder of ways that we can live and awaken and uh, practice. They are sometimes called, uh, as the paramitas, 
the perfections of our nature. And what they teach about is the discovery of the inherent beauty or quality of the awakened heart that is there as a birthright in every human being. When I begin to speak about the paramitas, as they're called in Sanskrit, these perfections of heart, it's traditional to start with the story. A long time ago, when you were much younger than you are now, there was a Buddha born in India, not the past Buddha, but many Buddhas before him, named Dipankara Buddha. And it happened that Dipankara Buddha was wandering about India, as Buddhas do in these kind of stories. And it was told that he was coming to a particular village in the foothills of the Himalayas, and everyone got excited, and they tried to make the village beautiful and make this kind of great welcome for this awakened being. And one particular young man who was there wanted to assist in some way, but came a little bit late, just as the Buddha Dipankara was entering the village. And they'd made this beautiful path through the woods coming into the village, but there was one part that wasn't quite completed. And so this young man, out of uh, a great sense of respect and devotion, waited, and when he saw Dipankara Buddha arrive, he saw such dignity and compassion and graciousness and presence with each step that this being took, that there arose in him the noble desire or thought that I will do myself whatever it takes to fulfill such beauty and compassion and care and presence, whatever it would take to turn this being here into that light of Buddha, I will do. And he bowed as Dipankara Buddha went by and offered his, himself. Um, in some stories he laid his cloak on the ground, in others he laid his body on the ground to make sure that the Buddha had a comfortable place to walk across in the forest. And as he did, as he made his offerings, Dipankara Buddha nodded to him and acknowledged that, yes, you too will awaken as I have and be a light in this world. And that is the story that Siddhartha Gautama, 2,500 years ago, it said, told to his disciples in India. However, there is a, some, there is a very important um, interval in the story that needs to be noted. And that is, in order to move from where he was on that day with Dipankara Buddha, to awakening under the Bodhi tree as Siddhartha Gautama, he had to practice these perfections that they are called of generosity, compassion, patience, virtue, steadfastness, loving-kindness. And it's said that he undertook the practice of those for 100,000 Mahakalpas and four immensities. Now, a Mahakalpa is a period of time in, in, the, in Buddhist cosmology that's described as the length of time. If you imagine a mountain as high as Mount Everest, seven miles high, seven miles long and seven miles wide, 
uh, as high seven miles as the distance an ox cart can go in a day. And you imagine that a bird with a silk scarf in its beak comes along every hundred years and drags the scarf across the peak of the mountain, wearing it away slightly. When that mountain is worn down by the bird coming by every hundred years, that is one Mahakalpa. So in his past incarnations, the Buddha practiced generosity, patience, steadfastness, virtue, compassion, loving-kindness, and so forth, for 100,000 Mahakalpas and four immensities, however long they are. And there are hundreds of stories of the Buddha's past incarnations or lives that are told primarily as uh, the uh, and animal tales, when the Buddha was born as a rabbit, or the Buddha was born as a tiger, or the Buddha was born as an elephant. And they're the tales that are told to children in the villages throughout India and, and Buddhist Asia. Um, and they all speak of the cultivation of these qualities in the heart. For example, um, one time the Buddha was born in the forest as a hare, as a rabbit who had many other animal friends and lived in, as one would expect, a very um, gracious communal way with the other creatures of the forest. And then sometime later on in the life of this hare, there came a yogi or a sage, a wise person wandering through the forest, who was hungry and starving without food and didn't know what to do and was on the verge of dying. And this rabbit became so enamored of the beauty of this uh, sage who sat there quietly, even though he could not find enough food to eat, that she threw herself into the fire and offered herself as his dinner. This is the story anyway, the kind of penultimate story of generosity. Um, And as a result of that offering, she was lifted up by the gods and placed in the moon. So if you look at the moon on the full moon night, you will see, if you look closely, a hare, a rabbit in the moon. And this is the, this is the hare that children see and honor as she who gave her life to someone who was beautiful and noble, and then she was exalted in this way to shine over the earth. So these are the kind of stories that are told. It is also said that whenever a being expresses these awakened qualities, passion, compassion, patience, uh, loving-kindness, steadfastness, generosity, a Buddha arises, a Buddha or a Bodhisattva. In the Avatamsaka Sutra, which is, this is one of the volumes of it, it's a number of volumes, It tells about all the possible universes that can be created out of the void and appear in boundless space and time. And it describes universes made of dreams, universes made of clouds, universes made of light, of stone, of metal, of flowers, of odors and scents, universes of perfumes. And in all of these universes, there arise Buddhas. And the principles of the Buddhas are the same because they teach that joy and happiness come when the heart 
has developed or awakened to its innate generosity and compassion and patience and loving-kindness and wisdom and steadfastness and so forth. Now, one hears about these stories, the old stories, and you say, well, those are nice kind of fairy tales, but isn't that a little bit too much? You know, throwing yourself in the fire as the rabbit did, or a hundred thousand mahakalpas? I mean, that just doesn't seem possible. To try to make oneself perfectly generous, perfectly compassionate, perfectly patient, We start to think it's like perfecting the personality, you know, like a perfectly clean automobile, right? A perfectly clean apartment. But then what happens? It gets dirty again, right? Um, And you start to think, well, how many lifetimes would it take me to be perfectly compassionate and perfectly gracious and perfectly virtuous and generous? And how much therapy and how much yoga, you know? And, And... and how much service, and, and it starts to get a little bit overwhelming. But the idea is not that it's some distant goal. Rather, this is the mythological ar- archetypal language that says that there is an element within each of us that can be touched, which is outside of time. When you hear 100,000 Mahakalpas, it doesn't mean that you have to start running to get there because it's so far beyond anything that you could imagine. It speaks of that reality that is timeless, that is beyond our limited sense of time, and instead is available when we step out of the small sense of self into another dimension entirely. For in fact, the perfection of the heart of generosity or patience or care, the powers of this that are yours and mine and reside in every being can be awakened in a moment. And I have had for years on my refrigerator the picture of that Chinese man with his two shopping bags coming back from the market standing in front of the row of tanks and just standing there and not allowing them to go any further. And we've all heard the stories of mothers who have lifted automobiles off their children, things that seem absolutely impossible. And they didn't take a hundred thousand mahakalpas in physical time, but they took a stepping out of the small sense of ourself to open to some other dimension of being that is also who we really are. When we speak of these teachings of the perfection of the heart, in one way we can describe them as qualities that can be cultivated, nurtured, developed. But even more importantly, they are an invitation to let go of the small sense of self, the body of fear, as it is called, and remember who we really are, to touch into that vast and universal heart. O nobly born, O you who are the daughters and sons of the Buddhas, 
Remember who you really are. So the first of these qualities, and I chose to do these qualities this summer because I like them so much. It's really a pleasure to speak of them. The first of these qualities of our own Buddha nature is the generous heart, is generosity. And it's not because you should or you would or because you you can be such a great person to be generous. But the generous heart speaks of the universality of this quality of giving. The word is dana or offering or maybe it's translated as service, the service of love of giving to, in all kinds of other ways, to others, to the world. And if we begin to reflect on the quality of generosity and giving, we see how much we have been given to. Sunlight, you know, the amazing light that we had in that mysterious moment of today's, this evening's uh, eclipse of the sun. It's so mysterious, really, that we go around this fireball of a star that hangs in vast space. Nobody knows how that happened. You know, for a certain period of time, and our days are because of the particular rotation of this planet as it dances around the sun. It's incredibly mysterious. And we are given, all for free, as much sunlight as we want. And rainwater, and warmth, and the the protection of the earth to rest on, and incredible food. And I had a friend who came some years ago um, to uh, live in America from Russia when it was still the Soviet Union. And he flew into San Francisco and was taken into one of our supermarkets and stood in the aisle and just wept. He could not believe it. And he said, how many markets like this there are there in the city? He said, well, every, every few blocks there's another market. He could not believe the abundance that is offered to us. As we make ready to eat this food, says Norman Fisher, we remember with gratitude the people, animals, plants, insects, creatures of the sky and sea, air and water, fire and earth, all turning in the wheel of living and dying, whose joyful exertion, not separate from ours, provides our sustenance this day. We receive so much, and we've received over and over from our ancestors, from our European ancestors, and our African ancestors, and our Latino ancestors, and the Miwok ancestors who were on this land before we came, and our Arabic ancestors who kept the Greek and Roman and Persian, the the wisdom of the ages alive for a thousand years during the Dark Ages in Europe. They're the ones that kept the life of of human culture for us that we still know today and and develop the mathematics and philosophy and the graciousness. 
We live on the labor of so many others. Every time you stop at a traffic light, you offer a kind of moment of generosity to someone else to go with a green light, don't you? I mean, there's a certain self-interest in it, I understand. Every time they stop, they say, after you, you know? There's this incredible play of generosity. Now, why does enlightenment, the qualities of the awakened heart, begin with generosity? How does it express enlightenment? It's simple. It's about letting go. It's about discovering that joy that is inherent not by holding on, but the happiness of being independent of the changing conditions of this world. The real measure of our wealth is not how much we'd be worth, is, is how much we'd be worth if we lost all our money. The real measure of our wealth the wealth of our being or our heart. So how to understand the power of the generous heart? Let's do a few reflections. Think of someone, as you listen, who's been generous to you as a benefactor with time, with love and care, with money. Just picture them and reflect or recollect when you picture them how you feel about them, someone who's really been generous to you, what it's like to see them in your mind. For most of us there comes a kind of happiness because those who are generous are also loved. Now take a moment to remember times of your own generosity. It's okay, you don't have to be so judgmental of yourself. You have been of assistance or care or money. Sometime when you really gave to someone else. We have all done it. And remember how that felt. the quality of trust, of connectedness, the letting go of it. If you want, you can remember and sense the opposite. Remember a time when you felt fearful, miserly, stingy, hoarding things contracted with your time and energy. Remember that? Remember those days? And what does that feel like to the heart and the body and mind? It is taught that there are three levels of giving, and each of them is good. The first is called tentative giving. Tentative giving is when you think, well, maybe I'll help this person. Oh, I'm not sure. You know, or I should give this away. No, I might need it sometime. I better put it in my garage or my attic or wherever you store stuff. 
and you kind of go back and forth I might need it but on the other hand it's just gonna clutter up the garage and I've got three others of them like that and I don't you know and you go back and forth and finally say all right I'm gonna give this away and that moment of saying all right I'm gonna release this already as a moment of generosity it's tentative okay but it's still beautiful now the next level of generosity is called brotherly or sisterly giving instead of the tentative you have friends people in the community family whoever it happens to be that you care about and you look at your things and you say oh brothers sisters share in some way with me let me offer what I have so that we can share together and in that the heart opens further and then as generosity grows deeper what arises in us naturally is called royal giving or regal giving the giving of the king or queen and in that one looks to find the, the finest the most wonderful thing or experience or whatever you have to offer and say let me give you this the very best that I have because the joy is in having someone else experience the pleasure that you take in the very finest remember those moments because you've done that as well and each you can feel as a movement of the opening of the heart of more love more joy in giving more freedom when I practiced as a monk for my years in Thailand and Burma the level of generosity of the people in those cultures was really astonishing and in part they were so they had such deep faith in the power of generosity and it was built into the cultures that I would go out in the mornings with my alms bowl begging bowl and people would come out and they really really want to give they would just take such delight in doing it and even in the poorest villages when I lived way up in the mountains on the border of Laos and Cambodia in the Mekong River Valley and these villages were so poor that in the dry season there wasn't much to eat except rice that had been kept and some kinds of curries that were made with whatever they could find frogs or or small fish that they could find in certain little ponds or or uh, anything else that moved really and um, very very poor I mean all right bats we had bat curry we had field mice were made into when you're hungry you eat what there is tremendously poor and I would come through the village in the morning and it was one of the great treasures of my life um, to walk in those little dikes between the rice paddies just as the sun is rising silently with a bowl and people in the village would come out and they would wait for the monks and they would bow and then they would offer food and in a certain way I began to think what am I doing you know even though I'm not rich I could always call home if I needed to and say to my parents you know I need five hundred dollars and they would send it to me right five hundred dollars was like two or three years income for that family and they were taking of the little food they had and saying here we offer some to you it meant so much 
And you don't say thank you. You're not allowed to talk to them. You just do this kind of dignified walking, you know. Thank you for the mango. I really wanted a piece of fruit or something. You just take it very quietly. And when you go back, when I went back to the monastery, all that I could do would be to bow and chant when we did the meal and take the food as a kind of offering to say their sincerity means that I also have to be sincere in my life. It was as if they were saying, we so value what you represent in this world, what the monks represent and the nuns represent, of purity and compassion and virtue, that we will give of the little bit that we have to, to, to feed you as well so that that beauty can be in this world. What generosity it was to receive. When I was in Burma, in the center of Rangoon is the Shwedagon Pagoda, this huge, wonderful pagoda surrounded by 30 or 40 or 50 fantastic monasteries. And the Shwedagon Pagoda is 350 feet high. It's almost as tall as the Eiffel Tower, covered in gold with this crown of jewels, huge jewels on the gold and silver crown at the top. Enormous. Um, and one day there had been, or one year, um, there had been a great typhoon that swept across Burma and it damaged the crown of the Shwedagon Pagoda. And inside the Shwedagon are said to be the walking stick and some of the ashes from the Buddha's funeral pyre and various things from the time of the Buddha that they really value and treasure a lot. And Burma is a very poor country at this point because of the dictatorship, military, and otherwise. And it was going to be a major task to fix the crown of the Shwedagon Pagoda because it was badly damaged and it's made of gold and jewels. And as soon as the typhoon had passed, from the farthest villages, People took out their earrings and off their gold rings and um, took the, the jewelry that was really the treasure of their family and they began to send it with trusted friends and family members into Rangoon until there was this huge mass of jewels and gold. Please fix that which is in the center of our hearts, in our, in our kingdom, in our country, so that we will know that we honor the teachings of the Dharma. Um, the, the level of generosity was just stunning. So this, too, is our practice. And the important thing is to start where we are. That's why tentative giving is a part of that. doesn't mean you're supposed to be regal giving all the time. It's not about judgment. In the littlest things, moment by moment, it is the inner learning of what it means to let go and offer time, care, money, words, your hands, your love to another. And to realize that as we let go, there's something that gets freer and lighter and more spacious in us. Now it's also important, as I speak of the perfections, not to be idealistic, because it's easy to judge yourself or to judge somebody else who's not being generous in the right way. We judge ourselves so harshly and then we turn it on to others. A few years ago, I was in the grocery store in California, writes a friend of mine, with a close 
woman friend, mother of several children. And as we snaked through the aisles, we became aware of a mother with a small boy moving in the opposite direction, meeting us head on in the aisle. The woman barely noticed us because she was so furious at her little boy. You've all seen this in the markets, right? Who seemed intent on pulling items off the lower shelves. Because, I mean, the best psychologist that you could hire in Western civilization spent months and years designing packages that would grab somebody's attention. So they worked, right? They grabbed his attention. And as the mother became more and more frustrated, she started to yell at the child, and several aisles later it progressed to shaking him roughly by the arm. At this point, my friend spoke up. A mother of three, a founder of a progressive school, she had never once in her life treated a child so harshly. I expected she'd give this woman a kind of mother-to-mother talk about controlling herself and the effect of her behavior on the child, and I braced myself for confrontation already upset inside. Instead, my friend said, what a beautiful little boy, how old is he? The woman answered cautiously, he's almost three. My friend went on to comment about how curious he seemed how her own three children were just like him in the grocery store, pulling things off the shelves, so interested in all the wonderful colors and packages. He seemed so bright and intelligent, my friend said. The woman took her boy in her arms by now and with a shy smile came across her face, gently brushing the hair out of his eyes. She said, yes, he's very smart and curious, but sometimes he wears me out. My friend responded very sympathetically, yes, they can do that. They're so full of energy. And as we walked away, I heard the mother speaking more kindly to the boy about getting home and cooking his dinner. We'll have your favorite macaroni and cheese, she told him, and carried him out. So the generosity is the generosity of our care in a moment, without judgment the care for another being. Because this human birth, your incarnation and mine, coming into this human world, human birth is difficult. We live halfway between heaven and earth, and we have a measure of joy and pleasure and beauty, unspeakable beauty at times, and equally a great measure of sorrow and loss and oceans of tears. And every week in my life and perhaps in yours, there are the stories of divorces, people who are dying and those who are struggling, hospitals and struggling in their work, and not only the personal ones, but the homeless people on our streets, and the stories from Amnesty International, and the poverty prisons that we have that in many ways are really racist prisons, full of people, two million, in this so-called enlightened culture. And the terrible wounds that peoples do to one another around the world out of conflict over religion, land and racism and all the terrible things that we know that are going on in Asia and Africa and the Middle East just now.
and in our own communities as well. When we reflect on the difficulties of this human life and hear the teachings of generosity, we might think, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. The world needs so much. There's so much difficulty out there, so many people in need. However can I do this? A friend of mine who's been a hospice director worked in hospices for many, many years. He was a Buddhist monk before that. Told me one day he'd been working in a hospice with families of those who were grieving, with those who were dying for a number of years. One day he went out to a park nearby the hospice and he was sitting on the grass taking his lunch and he looked up And there was a father there playing with his four or five-year-old daughter, rolling a ball back and forth, tossing a ball around. And he watched them for a while, and he began to weep, because it had been so long since he'd seen a normal family. Every family that he had been visiting over the last three years was a family where someone was dying. It's really important when we hear the teachings of the perfection of generosity not to take them in mistakenly to the small sense of self, the separate sense of self. Because to understand true generosity means that we have to include all beings, including guess who? this one seated right here, ourself. And the real generosity means a listening to the heart to know when our actions are a letting go and when they come because we're afraid, when they come out of attachment or when they come out of care, when they come out of fear of rejection or codependence or all those other things. And to sense what is wise for all beings, including this one here, a mercy and a generosity toward our own capacities and our own limitations. There are seasons to the heart, like the Tao. If you pay attention, the heart too breathes, just like the body breathes. The heart opens sometimes and it closes. This is really the truth. And you might say, oh, I want it open all the time, (sighs) like a big sunflower or something, but it doesn't do that, beside which (sighs) it'd get really tight if it was only one way. It needs to breathe, and there need to be times (sighs) when we turn inward, times to serve and times to rest, times to effort and times to surrender, a dance of our life. And in nature, the mothers and fathers in nature, they understand whether it's the mother lioness or the birds, the fathers and mothers in the nests or the wolves. They nurse and provide and sacrifice for their young ones. And at some point, 
they kick them out. Or they say, all right, today is the day you are going to learn to fly. Like it or not, this is the day. No more food coming to you. I'm sorry, we're not sending out for pizza anymore. You have to get your own meals, and you have to do it by flying with your own wings. And this is the truth if we are to live a generous and wise life. I know it for myself. I have struggled over the years with how to keep a balance of my family life and teaching and various invitations and then things I care about, the, the occupation of Tibet and the terrible conflict in the Middle East and the um, torture of people that Amnesty International writes about and there are all these letters that I want to write and all the things that I want to do. Yet to be truly generous, we also have to offer our honesty and our vulnerability and even our brokenness, our limitations, can become a gift to another. Story for you. When I left New York for Peru, I felt like I was making a journey that would transform my life. I was young and eager. I was, I was 13,500 feet high and very cold. As a marinal sister, I was there to teach school. I guess you could say I was a figure just by being there. But then the illness happened after a year, quite suddenly, up there. The doctor said it was rheumatoid arthritis, ultimately crippling. They said there was nothing they could do about it. I had surgery at the Mayo Clinic and did a great deal of prayer in that chapel, reflecting on what it would mean to have a crippled body. I didn't know what else to do, so I sought to enter the world again to serve, but I had no idea as how. I went to live with, with the mystery of my own suffering and saw that I had to enter into it and face up to it to allow myself to learn. I returned to Peru several years later at a lower altitude and almost everything changed, especially my attitude toward the people. I could feel their terrible poverty and pain in a new way in fact, it seemed as if I was seeing it for the first time. How I'd often rushed around trying to solve people's problems without really seeing them. The pain in their faces, the insecurity, the nervous hands, the hurt inside. It was only when suffering had touched me that I began to feel and know their hearts. The affirmation I got from them was so important you're the same person you were before, and even if you can't teach or do anything, we want you to stay. And so my ministry changed. It became the ministry of walking together. Those of us with physical disabilities joined together to share our experiences and support others as best we can. So we would walk about as best we could. Many of the Peruvians we ran into with handicaps were deeply ashamed and hid. We would come to see them, and they would hide. 
I think of Juan, a polio victim at three, who had been hidden by his family in their small mud brick house until we discovered him at age eight. His brother Julio took us home one day, and there was Juan, his twisted legs under him, neath him scooting around the small dirt patio on a circular piece of rubber. His mother was suspicious and didn't want us to stay. A handicapped child meant she was being punished for something. She was ashamed. We returned to visit Juan several times, and one time we found him alone. His family with the rest of the village had gone to a religious procession. Of course, he'd never seen one, so we borrowed a bicycle and put Juan on top of it and joined in the procession itself. It was his first time outside the house, the first time he'd looked at people from a level higher than the ground, his first procession. His parents were momentarily annoyed, but their attitude gradually changed. And when the time was right, at the town meeting, we asked if we could raise money to send Juan to Lima for physical rehabilitation, and everyone supported us. He had a long, hard struggle with pain and effort, but one day he returned to the village. He was using braces and a cane. It was so hard for him. But as he began to walk down the streets to his home, people came out from their own homes. They appeared from all over, and they were cheering and clapping and followed him all the way home. It was so wonderful. It was Juan's second procession. And so now I see that our own little suffering is not for ourselves. It can have an impact throughout the world. That's how much our lives can mean and what's possible. And I've been with people who would just cry over this truth, and I offer it to you. The perfection of the generous heart is not by making or becoming or fixing. It's really by our being. As one Indian master was asked, how do I practice enlightenment? He said, love people, feed them. They are us. It is a shift from I and other to us, all of us in our imperfections and our beauty. To sit in meditation is to begin to discover our humanity, to hold all the voices, our fears and love, our longing, our generosity, and to listen in this way with the heart open, compassion and understanding, is not a process of fixing ourselves or another person or a situation, but it's learning to really love, a communion, if you will, a communion of care and a communion of silence. And that is contagious inclusive, even reckless. As Rumi says, love is reckless, not reason. Reason seeks a profit. Love comes on strong, consuming herself, unabashed. Yet in the midst of suffering, 
Love proceeds like a millstone, hard-surfaced and straightforward. Having died to fear and self-interest, she risks everything and asks nothing. Love gambles away every gift for the heart. The quality of generosity, that Buddha nature within you and me and everyone, really comes when the heart remembers joy for no reason at all. When it remembers the quality of freedom that is possible in this moment, no matter what the circumstances. And it moves through us. There's a kind of abundance, you know, and it's there in you. I remember when we have gone several different times to live in Southeast Asia, and I brought my young daughter, Caroline, when she was younger. And we used to get up early in the morning in the village that we stayed so we could put food in the monk's bowl. Because it's such a lovely act to do. And my daughter, Caroline, loved to do this. Kids do. You know, kids have things and they like to give them away. And so we'd been there a few weeks and we were offering food to the monks. And she said, Daddy, she was probably seven years old at this time, we have to go into town to the store before tomorrow. I said, why? She said, well, we've been giving the monks food, but we haven't been giving them the right food. I said, what do you mean? She said, I want to go to the store and I would get a whole lot of candy, candy bars and things. For her, the monks deserve the very finest of human food, right? Again from Rumi, he writes, Walking out of the treasury building, Lord, the air smells good today, straight from the mysteries within the inner courts of God, a grace like new clothes thrown across the garden, free medicine for everybody, the trees in their prayer, the birds in praise, haven't you noticed? Face to face with a lion, I grow leonine. Walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous. Anyone still sober in this weather must be really afraid. Walking out of the treasury building, the treasury of one's own heart. Most of the young people that I know are tremendously altruistic. They really want the world to be a better place. Remember that when you were young? Hmm? It's in there. It is part of who you are. In the Iroquois nation, when a child was three or four years old, they would have a ritual in which they would take the child in the midst of winter into one of the lodges and place her or him in the center with lots of the other elders around and then begin to give him or her all the most wonderful food that they had in the village until the child was really full, felt this great sense of abundance. And then from outside the circle someone would cry, help me, I am hungry, I am hungry. 
And the child who was full with the food and abundance would take that food that was there and go and feed that person. And they bring the child back to the center of the circle and feed the child the most wonderful drinks that the community had until this little girl or boy was replete with the delightful drinks. And then someone would cry, I am thirsty, I am thirsty from outside the circle. And the child would hear and they would hold the child's hand and the child would have the delight of offering that same delicious drink. And then they would take the child back in the center again and put around him or her the most, the softest furs and the, the softest deer skin and all the warm things that you could wear in the winter. And then someone would cry, oh, it's so cold this winter, I'm so cold. And the child would, as children love to do, grab all the rest of the furs and the deerskins and carry them out and put them around this person. It is so natural in us as human beings. And those of you who've traveled to the cultures where there was still a village life, whether it was the villages of Peru or traveling in the Middle East with the Bedouins and the, the, the Arabic culture that now is being so um, stigmatized in our press. If you were to go into a Bedouin village um, as a guest, the level of generosity, let us roll out the finest carpets, what can we offer you to drink? What can we give you to eat? Here's the most wonderful place to sleep. Let me recite for you a, vo a verse from Hafez and Rumi first, so that when you sleep you will have only the most beautiful sounds in, the, in your ears. The level of generosity that's offered in the traditional villages across the world is something that we still remember in our bones. We still remember it. We carry it in the cells of our body. The generous heart has unimagined possibilities when we trust, when we open from the body of fear and deficiency, that small self, to say, yes, this too. I love the story of a woman who lived, lives in Oregon, a woman who was unable to get pregnant, and so she and her husband decided to adopt a child. And they looked around, and finally they adopted a child from India, a little boy, very, very small, and came home, the whole adoption process, an orphan. And after they'd had him for a year in their family, it turned out that he had cerebral palsy. And so he was never going to be able to walk, and they began to work with that. They also found out, as the months went on, um, that he couldn't hear very well, and in fact he was becoming progressively deaf. So they had this beautiful little boy who was deaf, and who had cerebral palsy and was never going to be able to walk, that they had adopted. And they loved him a lot. And they thought about it for a while, and they said, you know, he's going to be so lonely in this world. We should have another child. So they wrote off to the adoption agency in India and said, we have one child, 
but would you please look for another boy so that our child won't be lonely, so that we could have two together? Oh, and if you would, see if you can find a boy who also has cerebral palsy in his death, so that he's not alone in that either. And they adopted a second child like their first. Imagine that. Imagine, okay, you go and you're going to adopt this child. You have this beautiful, shining child who has these disabilities. And all the fears you might have and struggles, and there's your child. And then you look and you say, gosh, he's, he's really going to need a friend. We'll take another, please. Imagine that spirit. from Father Daniel Berrigan. Sometime in your life, hope that you might see one starved man, the look on his face when the bread finally arrives. Hope that you might have baked or bought or even kneaded it yourself. For the look on his face, for your meeting his eyes across a piece of bread, you might be willing to lose a lot, to give a lot, to suffer a lot, to love a lot. Every day we do practice generosity in our care, in the way that we touch those around us, in our concern for the world. The awakened heart, your true nature, the great heart of a Buddha in each of us is not far away. And what these teachings begin to offer us is simply a reminder that we might live with that grace and that graciousness and that beauty again each day. One last story and then we sit. I'm a social worker. I got a phone call one day from a woman who's working for the Gallup poll. She's explaining this poll. She's trying to find out how much time people spend helping, getting me to understand the criteria. I finally start to crack up, seeing the absurdity of it all. You all are crazy. How much time are people helping? What kind of question is that? Tell Gallup he's nuts. She started to laugh as well. I know, that's what I said too. What can I say? It's a job. She was sort of whispering conspiratorially, which made me laugh more. So then I said, well, was that helping? She said, I guess so. I said, was it? I don't know. That's your job. You tell me. And then I threw in, you know, we're just trying to make, make the best of a nutty situation. In fact, that's what I'm trying to do all the time. That's it. I want you to put me down in the Gallup poll as someone who helps all the time. <laughs> More laughter. She says, we don't have a category for all of the time. <laughs> oh, ye of little faith. But we do have a line here that says all of the above. Oh, at this point, I didn't know if she was kidding or not, but I went for it. Perfect. Put me down under all of the above. I'm a very all-of-the-above kind of person. In fact, you have to put everybody down under all of the above. 
everybody's trying to make the best of a nutty situation. Gallup can release a poll saying, everybody in America is helping. <clears throat> God, she said, I wish I had the nerve. <clears throat> Maybe I'll do it with alternate answers. One out of every two people in America is helping. The other half is being helped. <clears throat> Finally, we said goodbye. It's been great, I said. Very helpful, she agreed. <laughs> Months later, there's a story in the newspaper. Gallup poll reveals half of all Americans help out as volunteers. Right there in the paper. She did it. She pulled it off. I rush into the kitchen reading the headline to my wife. That's me, I exclaim. Which half, says my very wise and wonderful wife. All of the above, I answer triumphantly. Well, could all of the above just help wash the dishes as well, she replies, smiling. So let's sit, please. And in this week ahead, let yourself explore and revel in and enjoy the generous heart that is your true nature. Let it be a practice. Pay attention. One of the practices that I've done over many years now, probably for 20 or more years, is that uh, if I, I, I made a kind of intention or vow to myself that if I have a thought that I will do something for someone or give something to someone, a generous thought, that I don't second-guess it. If I think it, I do it. And it's kind of amazing, because, you know, you think it and you say, well, maybe I shouldn't and all that. I think it and I just do it. Um, and I don't regret it at all. And if you think back, you don't regret those moments of generosity. 
So let yourself play with it and experiment in whatever way serves you. Feel the delight and the awakening of your own Buddha nature, of your own heart. Chant for the evening is just a simple sound in the text called the Buddhist um, Sutra on Perfect Enlightenment or Perfect Wisdom, um, which is in its largest uh, form, 80,000 verses, that's then summed up in 8,000 verses and in 800 verses. The summary of that text is one sound, the seed syllable in Sanskrit that represents the original or first sound and the last sound in life, but most importantly, the reason it's considered the summary of the sutra of perfect wisdom or awakening is it's the sound of letting go. It's the seed syllable, ah. So I'd like us just to sing or chant ah for a little bit, and as you do, let it open you in whatever way wants to open in your heart. And then we'll go out into the evening. Ah, ah, at harmony, ah, 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 week, enjoy the generosity of the world and the generosity of your own heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.